The CDC's eviction moratorium is not about COVID-19. Nope. It's not about a virus. It's not about people that have been hurt by the government-mandated lockdowns, which closed their business and ruined their livelihoods. No, no, no. The CDC's eviction moratorium, by the way, it's not just the CDC's eviction moratorium. This is Biden's eviction moratorium. This is Marxism. And it always was, by the way. This is Marxism. It's an attack on private property. That's what Marxists do. They try to obliterate property rights. They try to convince people through abusing the rule of law that government owns property and that government makes all the rules about property, that government dictates what you do with your property. And if you dare to ask your tenants to pay their rent, well, you could face jail time. You could face fines up to 100,000 or from 100,000, that's the low end, to $250,000. This is Marxism. And the Biden administration, President Biden specifically knows that this is unconstitutional, as it should be. He literally admitted that this was, quote, not likely to pass constitutional muster. So what happens when something is not likely to pass constitutional muster when it's an executive action? Well, it has to be done legislatively, which the White House knew. They asked for legislation about uh, evictions, for a moratorium on evictions, and Congress did not produce. There was nothing passed. What does that mean? That means our representatives in Congress did not pass this because they did not want to pass this because they knew it would make their constituents unhappy. This isn't rocket science. This is human nature and the rule of constitutional law. So the Supreme Court, as you remember, ruled back in June that the CDC had overstepped their bounds by issuing this uh, eviction moratorium. The Biden administration just tried to extend it to October. This is what President Biden said. He said, and I quote, I've sought out constitutional scholars to determine what is the best possibility that would come from executive action or the CDC's judgment. What could they do that is most likely to pass, pass muster constitutionally? The bulk of the constitutional scholarship says it's not likely to pass constitutional muster, but there are several key scholars who think that it may and it's worth the effort. End quote. So obviously he means uh, activists, not experts in constitutional law because they're is no constitutional justification for this. In fact, this is what impeachment is for. We heard all these years, we heard the left tell us that Trump is authoritarian, that he's abusing his power, he's acting like a tyrant, this is why he should be impeached. Actually, impeachment should be used when a president knowingly, willfully, deliberately violates the Constitution and admits doing that, abuses his power, violating the rule of law, and publicly saying that that's what he's doing on purpose not by accident, not because he overstepped a boundary unintentionally. He's doing it on purpose. That is what impeachment is for. That is why Congress has the power to impeach the president for times such as these. Now, the practical matter of this, the practical aspect of evictions moratorium is that it hurts the American people. It hurts the middle class more than anybody else. And this, of course, is counter to the narrative that the left is propagating, telling us that you know, landlords are these big conglomerates, these big corporations, these investment firms that can stand to lose money. They actually don't need to make a living because they're not actually people profiting from this. They're corporations. None of that is true. That is statistically false. It is fake news. Most landlords in our country are middle-class Americans, the working people, 
The majority of the nation's landlords are individual investors. They are not businesses. According to the U.S. Census, here's the data to back up what I say. Individual landlords own about 23 million units in the United States in 17 million different properties. More than 6 million renter households right now are behind on their rent. So who does this hurt? It doesn't hurt big business. It doesn't hurt corporations. It hurts individual investors, property owners, everyday Americans, the middle class, you and me, our family and friends. Because the property that we own, the government is telling people that they can squat on it, that they can essentially steal our property without compensating us, and that if we try to collect the rent that is owed to us, because it's our property, then we could face a year in jail? What gives the CDC, the CDC, this is an executive agency, actually a sub-agency of an executive agency, what gives them the right to allow tenants to steal from their landlords? Guys, this is the administrative state that I talk about all the time. This is the administrative state in action, where rules and regulations are not set by the legislature, which is where they're supposed to be set, they're dictated by unelected bureaucrats in executive agencies with no accountability to the people. They don't care about the law. They don't care about the Constitution. This is the administrative state. And what they are administering is Marxism. Abolish the administrative state. Because this is what Marxism does. It abolishes private property. Also, funny note, please note how all the Democrat policies actually benefit the big corporations and hurt mom and pop shops. Because what's gonna happen here if individual landlords are losing money to the point that they're actually, that, that's part of their business, right? This investment is their business. They're not gonna be able to afford it. So they're gonna have to offload it somehow. They're gonna close up shop. And who is going to purchase it from them? Who is going to get their business? Yeah, the big corporations, the big business, the big company. So Democrats claim to be against big corporations. They claim to fight for the working man. But what they're doing is they're putting mom and pop shops, individual investors, middle-class Americans out of business and essentially handing that business to big corporations. And also, please note, when this uh, illegal eviction moratorium does end, whether the Supreme Court does its due diligence and says, you can't extend this, you have no legal authority to do this, whether that happens tomorrow or whether this happens in October, you're not going to see millions and millions of the American people being turned out in the streets because they're evicted. No, no. Some people will be evicted because some people have taken advantage of this. Some people will be evicted, but most people will suddenly, miraculously, coincidentally find that they do have enough money to pay their rent. They just weren't because they weren't legally obligated to do so. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. Okay, before we get to a part of the monstrosity of an infrastructure bill, uh, this part I actually forgot to mention yesterday, but I think we will all find it very illuminating, very telling about the Democrats' radical leftist agenda. Before we get to that, let's talk for a second about young heretics. Guess what? I finally bullied Spencer Clavin, and yes, I picked the word bullied because that is exactly what happened. I bullied Spencer Clavin into giving me a workout, into actually uh, training me so that my biceps 
rival his. <laughs> um, you're gonna be able to see that very soon on my locals page, on his locals page. So go to youngheretics.com slash locals or lizwheelershow.com slash locals. Um, you should also, of course, subscribe to Spencer Clavin's podcast. We had a little bit of a debate during this workout about whether bullying is a good thing or a bad thing because, you know, Spencer, um, Young Heretics is a great show, of course. It's produced by Soundfront, who are the same guys who produce my podcast. They also produce Verdict with Ted Cruz, so quite the lineup going on there. Please subscribe to Young Heretics at youngheretics.com. Tell Spencer I uh, sent you, and tell him what you think about bullying. Tell him whether you think that's good for society or not. And please, please tell me what you think of our workout when you do get to see that. I'm not sure, actually, that I'm even supposed to mention it since it hasn't um, released yet, but hey, you get... You get a first sneak peek to hear about it, I guess. Okay, let's talk about the infrastructure bill for a second. So we talked about yesterday how the Democrats are lying about it. They're lying because it's not fully paid for at all. It's accounting, it's a shady accounting tricks um, they're using to claim that it's fully paid for. It's also not a compromise. It's not a good thing that we have lowered the price tag of this bill from $5 trillion to $1 trillion. We fiscal conservatives shouldn't sit here and think, oh, well, good, now it's less expensive. No, it's a trillion dollars still. A trillion dollars, inappropriate. But here's a part, here's something included in this infrastructure bill that really shows you that the Democrats don't care about infrastructure at all. They're just using this to advance their radical leftist agenda. So there is a mileage tax pilot program that's included in the Senate version of this bill. It was slipped into section 13002 of the legislation. And by the way, if your legislation has 13,002 sections, it's too long. There's too much of it there. It creates too much government. So side note there. But this pilot program would um, test essentially a system to tax drivers based on how many miles each and every one of us drives in our car. Of course, it's called the National Motor Vehicle Per Mile User Fee Pilot. So how would this work, we might ask? Well, this program would of course target, and this is where, by the way, this particular phrase is where we find out what the Democrats' agenda is. It would target passenger motor vehicles, light trucks, and medium and heavy duty trucks. Oh, just a coincidence that you're going after trucks? I don't think so. Not a coincidence that you're going after trucks. You're going after trucks because you would rather grown men in our country drive around in tiny little Priuses versus trucks. You don't want the emissions. Okay, well, the fees, they say, may, quote, vary between vehicle type. Oh, so you want to penalize people who drive trucks and reward people who drive silly little Priuses then. Okay, there you go. You're now picking and choosing winners or losers based on your political agenda. So they want to vary, fees may vary between vehicle types and weight classes to reflect estimated impacts on infrastructure, safety, congestion, the environment, or other related social impacts. What does that mean? Other related social impacts. It's these vague little phrases where the Democrats hide their political agenda. Other related social impacts. So are they gonna put Black Lives Matter in there? Is this gonna be related to gun control? Is this gonna be related to Marxism? Is this gonna be related to what? COVID? Other related social impacts? What's a social impact? That certain people can't afford to buy trucks? Redistribution of wealth? This, this little phrase scares the heck out of me. I do not like any legislation that has vague phrases that the Democrats can twist words and twist their policies to fit in. Any Republican who votes for this with this phrase 
ought to answer for it. You can't just let these phrases go. So fortunately, this pilot program is not mandatory at the beginning. It's looking for volunteers, they say, in all 50 states, Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. And they're going to test different ways of actually tracking the mileage. So they're going to test different ways, like tracking you through your smartphone and tracking you through a device, a diagnostic device on board of your vehicle. Now, of course, the person who's going to be responsible for implementing this test program is uh, Pete Buttigieg, Secretary Pete Buttigieg. His father, by the way, was a Marxist, so it makes sense that he would be part of implementing a Marxist agenda, Marxist control over our lives. Lives. So they're going to tax you based on how much you drive, but what's actually worse is that the federal government is going to track your miles. That's what's actually worse. Not only are they going to penalize you, almost like the Chinese Communist Party's social credit score. You are going to have to pay taxes based on whether your driving behavior makes you a good little minion of the federal government here in the United States. No. They're also going to track your miles. They're going to have tracking devices on your smartphone or tracking devices in your car. I don't think so. I don't think so. Again, any Republican senator who would vote for this without removing this stipulation has a lot of questions to answer because this is not Republican behavior. This is not conservative behavior. This is not limited government behavior. This is creepy Orwellian behavior, not only to track us, but to get rid of gas-powered vehicles altogether, which is their ultimate goal. Just say no to this. I can't believe I forgot to mention this yesterday because it's so insanely creepy, but tell your Republican senator to vote no on this. So I've been watching the Olympics a lot lately. I love the Olympics. I know there's a lot of controversy, but I have always, since I was a child, been glued to the television during the Olympics. And this one, I regret to tell many of you who don't like what's going on over there, but I have watched almost every minute of it. Um, You know this because you've heard my rants about Simone Biles. Uh, My opinion has not changed on that. There have been, of course, Olympic athletes who are how do we say this? Disrespectful to the United States, embarrassing to our country, ridiculous, entitled brats. Yes, I'm talking about Gwen Berry and Megan Rapinoe, or who was that other angry girl that made an X with her arms for oppressed people but couldn't define who exactly was oppressed? I forget her name, but you know who I'm talking about. So all of these people have sort of been uh, the face of the Olympics. They're the ones who grab the headlines from the American team. Of course, not not based on their athletic achievements, their performance here, but just based on their social justice warriorship. Well, let me introduce you to a woman who actually deserves our attention, an Olympic athlete from the United States of America who is proud to be an American. May I introduce you to Tamara Mensa Stock. She won the gold medal at the Olympics in Tokyo in wrestling, and this is what she had to say afterward. Take a listen. Of course I surprise myself. It's by the grace of God I'm able to even move my feet. Like, I just leave it in his hands and I pray that all the practice, that the hell that my freaking coaches put me through pays off. And every single time it does. And I get better and better. And it's so weird that there is no cap to the limit that I can do. And I'm, I'm excited to see what, what I have next. Last question for you. That American flag around your shoulders looks pretty good. How does that feel to represent your country like this? It feels amazing. I love representing the U.S. I freaking love living there. I love it, and I'm so happy I get to represent U.S.A. <laughs> love it. Well, well said. Congratulations. Enjoy that gold, and we'll see you out there on the podium, okay? Thank you. I'll try not to cry, but no problem. <laughs> now, was that not the most beautiful celebration you have ever seen? A woman 
proud to represent our country. That's what the Olympics are about. There are so many other athletic competitions that are about yourself, your personal goals, what you want to do, whether you're having fun, your achievement. Not the Olympics. The Olympics, you are proud. You are supposed to be proud to wear that flag around your shoulders and represent our country. It's the privileged few who get to do that on a world stage. And Tamara is wearing it well. Congratulations, sir. She might be the one that I'm the happiest that she won a gold medal of everything that I've seen thus far. Senator Elizabeth Warren says that abortion is about the functioning of our democracy. Just when you think that maybe this woman had uh, sacrificed her ambitions of always being in the public eye, she says this. So it was actually published in Teen Vogue. A couple years ago, as you may remember, Teen Vogue became very woke. They hired an editor who is essentially just, I mean, woke doesn't even describe this individual. This individual is a Marxist um, who wants to indoctrinate young people using this magazine. So that's why they, <laughs> I guess that's why they invited Senator Elizabeth Warren. How old is she? Like 100 to uh, show young people how to be cool. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren, everything you think about being cool. Well, she was asked in this magazine if voting rights and abortion rights were the key issues in making sure that people's freedoms were protected. And this is what Warren responded. She said, both voting and access to abortion are basic. They're about the functioning of our democracy and about the protection of personal autonomy. Protection of the vote means your voice gets heard in government. Protection of access to basic health care means your autonomy as a human being is fully respected by the law, that you will make the decisions about yourself. To me, she said, that's part of the heart of what all of this is about. This is where the two big fights are shaping up right now, and each intersects with the other, both from the perspective of respect for the individual and also from a political point of view. The right-wing extremists know that if they can keep people from voting, they've got a better chance to impose their views on abortion on an unwilling nation, end quote. So much to unpack, mind exploding. First of all, autonomy of people. Let's talk about that for a moment, shall we, Senator? From the same party mandating experimental vaccines be administered to people against their will if they wanna go into restaurants in New York City? How about autonomy and medical freedom there? Are you kidding? Forcing people to wear masks over their face when they don't want to? You wanna talk about freedom of your person to make your own choice? about your own body, but killing an unborn child, that's autonomy in the mind of Elizabeth Warren. These are the same people, by the way, that tell us, tell conservatives that we're being anti-science about COVID, which of course we're not. We shouldn't take that to heart because we know we're not. We're reading the, we're reading the studies, we're listening to the actual data, what the data is telling us, and we are questioning the so-called experts, the public health officials and government who are lying to us and whose lies have been proven. But nonetheless, the left claims we are anti-science. At the same time, they deny that life, a human life, begins at the moment of conception. Elizabeth Warren is denying the science. That's what we should ask her. Every reporter on the planet, anytime they encounter Elizabeth Warren, they should ask her, scientifically speaking, Senator Warren, putting politics aside, putting religion aside, scientifically speaking, when does a human life begin? If you ask Elizabeth Warren this question, I will invite you onto my show. I want to talk to Elizabeth Warren about that. And then she talks about the empowerment of women. And this is, this is what I find so insulting. As a young mother myself, my daughter is six months old. Um, clearly, I am a working mom. This is what I find so insulting about this feminist narrative that abortion is necessary for women to succeed. As if I cannot be a mom and be career successful at the same time, 
Am I somehow not capable enough of doing that? Only men can be dads and career-driven at the same time. Moms can't. Well, why is that? Is it because women are inferior? That's what feminists are implying when they tell us that we can only be empowered, we can only be successful, we can only achieve things in our career if we rely on killing our unborn in the womb. I reject that wholeheartedly on behalf of working moms and women everywhere. The fact of the matter is, Teen Vogue is trying to indoctrinate our young people because abortion is an uncomfortable topic to talk about. It's an emotional topic to talk about. We all know somebody who has had an abortion. We all know the situations which drive people to feel that that's their only resort. Most women don't want to have abortions even when they have them. Most women feel coerced into having those abortions. And so we don't like to talk about, as a society, we don't like to talk about the what is it of abortion because it brings to the surface how horrible the situations are. But we as conservatives, especially those of us who are Christian, especially those of us who follow science, it's our responsibility, you and I, to talk about abortion, to describe the what is it, what actually is an abortion. It's not the removal of a pregnancy. It's not the removal of a of POC, which is products of conception, which is the, the narrative, the verbiage that the left uses to hide the fact that it's an unborn baby. We have to describe what an abortion does to an unborn baby. And then we have to say, what is this POC, this product of conception? What is this object for removal in an abortion? And we have to scientifically describe the development of this unborn baby. And when you get to that point, then as a society, we have to ask, is this moral? Is this ethical? Should it be legal? And the answer to all three of those things is obviously not. But if we let Teen Vogue and let Elizabeth Warren hijack this narrative, then the next generation of women will feel that they have to partake in abortion to be successful, that it's part of what it means to be a woman to have an abortion, because they'll never hear a counter narrative from those of us who are living proof that the feminist narrative is false. That's why I'm never going to stop talking about this, even if it's an uncomfortable topic, because somebody has to. You and I have to do this or nobody else will. Okay, let's talk about ExpressVPN. So we all know how a VPN protects your privacy and your security online, right? I love ExpressVPN because I value my privacy and security online, but I did not know this until recently. You can use a VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's actually very simple. You just fire up the ExpressVPN app, you change your location to the UK, for example, you refresh Netflix or whatever streaming service you're using, and that's literally all there is to it. Because ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want websites to think that you are located. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is the best because they are ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen wherever you are. So visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash Liz. You can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN free by doing so. And this is actually the only way that you get those extra three months for free is by visiting my link, expressvpn.com slash Liz. So support the show. Watch what you want and protect your identity online at expressvpn.com slash Liz. Alexander Vindman. Do you remember that guy? Absolute nuts. Alexander Vindman was the primary witness, if you will, during the first impeachment uh, hearings for President Trump. He was the guy who uh, showed up in his in his army uniform and then corrected the senator, saying, instead of when the senator called him Mr. Vindman, he said, please call me Lieutenant Colonel. 
And by the way, my husband absolutely died when this happened because only pompous jack wagons in the military ask civilians to address them by rank. Nobody who should be taken seriously ever, ever does that. Um, so Vindman was a joke from the beginning, and Vindman, we now know, was obviously the one who fed the so-called whistleblower the information about the uh, Trump-Zelensky, Zelensky being the president of the Ukraine, the Trump-Zelensky phone call during which they discussed Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. So Vindman obviously fed the whistleblower the information because he had a policy difference. He didn't think that that's how President Trump should handle this situation. A policy difference is uh, not a cause for blowing any sort of whistle. It's not illegal. It's a policy difference. It means a policy difference should inform your vote, should inform your private opinion. It shouldn't inform betraying national security information to the entire country and certainly doesn't justify, obviously, Obviously, it's just the reality of the thing, impeaching a president of the United States. It was, we know, totally appropriate of President Trump to ask about Biden's conflict of interest in Ukraine, given the investigations into the Bidens that were happening at the time. But that is Alexander Vindman, a nutcase, a pompous, you know, lots of words come to mind, uh, a pompous, ridiculous person. And just this week, he posted this tweet that absolutely slayed me. It was one of those ones that I was scrolling through my Twitter feed on my phone, and I actually laughed out loud in the middle of a group because this is what he tweeted. He said, I'm in New York City to begin media engagements. Taking a random poll, it seems most New Yorkers are unaware that my book is out on Tuesday, August 3rd, and that I'm on CBS Sunday tomorrow between 9 and 10 Eastern. Help get the word out, uh, retweet this far and wide. And I absolutely died. I absolutely died because even partisan hacks like Alexander Vindman, uh, who tried to unseat a duly elected president based on policy differences, should hire a PR firm, hire PR agents during book publicity to make sure that you don't accidentally tell the world that nobody, literally nobody, even in liberal New York City, gives a rat's tail about your dumb old book. So that's, that's the lead up to this. So then Alexander Vindman, during his publicity tour for his book, he said the following thing. And if you didn't think this guy was a joke beforehand, you will see what a clown he is now. He said, and I quote, if the president was held accountable and removed, instead of just impeached, he wanted him convicted, we would have 600,000 more Americans walking the streets today. If they censured him, the president would have been on his heels and he probably would have been more cautious going into COVID. We wouldn't have had an economic disaster. Let this sink into your mind for a second. Think about what he just said. The COVID-19 virus would never have infected or killed even a single American person if the Senate had kicked Trump out of office. How on God's green earth did such a blithering idiot ever get to the highest levels of the national security community? Is this how we think science works? That the COVID-19 virus was so smart, they, the COVID-19 virus was so mad, it marched around infecting people, and it, it would have just sat back and died out if Trump had been removed from office. I mean, you literally can't make this stuff up. If I was writing a satire about how idiotic I thought Democrats were, this is the guy that I would invent. And no one would believe me if I invented him because it's so ridiculous they wouldn't think it was realistic. He's so moronic, no one would think that he would be real life. But he is. He's actually trying to sell his book by claiming that COVID-19 wouldn't kill a single person if Trump had been removed from office. I literally can't with these people. If, I mean, we all know that COVID-19 is no longer about the virus. COVID-19 is just a political ploy. It's just Marxism. It's just their way of exploiting what they call an emergency, using people's fear to 
uh, centralized power in the federal government. And my goodness, Alexander Finman, the epitome of a swamp creature, just confirmed that to us yet again. What an absolute joke. My guess is he's not going to sell very many books. Um, okay, speaking of books that sold a lot of copies, a lot of copies, but somehow did not make it on the New York Times list. I'm talking about my good friend Michael Knowles. I interviewed Michael Knowles this week. We actually debated whether government should censor speech because Michael Knowles thinks that there should be censorship of speech if conservatives are in charge. We had a great little debate because we're good friends and that's what friends do. Um, it's available now for early access on locals. Uh, here's a little sneak peek for you though. Take a listen. From the very beginning of the United States, you had whole swaths of a speech that were illegal, fraud, threats, uh, fighting words, obscenity. As recently as a dozen years ago, we jailed a, a pornographer in, in federal prison for almost four years just for committing obscenity. And so every society is going to have that. It's just now what happens is <laughs> obscene speech seems to be protected and encouraged and legitimate political speech is off limits. And I think that that's an, an inversion of our standards and we got we to gotta reset them according to the American free speech tradition. So differentiate though for me between cultural, and you can call it censorship if you want, or accountability, cultural accountability versus the government censoring. Because the water cooler example that you gave, um, or the, even the Yale professorship example that you gave, that would be private industry, right? That's private industry that's saying, hey, this is not appropriate behavior if you want to be on our premise, if you want to be on our premises or part of our program. That's not the government restricting their right to free speech. So which, which would you advocate for? Do you advocate for cultural accountability that we say, hey, if you're not going to live by our moral standards, we're not going to hire you or we're not going to allow you to be in our presence at a school? Or do you advocate for the government to actually censor speech? What I'm really excited about is to hear whether you thought I won that debate or whether you thought Michael won that debate. And if you thought I won, and only if you thought I won, please tell Michael that you thought I won that debate because I know he's eagerly awaiting all of, uh, all of those of you who think I won to tell him that he lost and I won. So uh, let me know what you think about that. Let him know. And for the full, the full debate, exclusive early access on LizWheelerShow.com slash locals. And now for the, my favorite part of the show each week, the four stories. That's right, four, not five. Four stories the mainstream media refused to report this week. Story number one, pornography for children. Now that's a phrase that used to pretty straightforwardly equal jail time for whoever was propagating this. Pornography for children. Now this is uh, a radical leftist question or agenda item. This woman who claims to be a journalist, her name is Flora Gill. She's written for GQ or the Times UK. She tweeted the following this past week. She said, quote, someone needs to create porn for children. Hear me out, she said. Young teens are already watching porn, but they're finding hardcore aggressive videos that give a terrible view of sex. They need entry-level porn, a softcore site where everyone asks for consent and no one gets choked, etc. She, Flora Gill, and rightfully so, received such backlash for this absolutely insane tweet that she deleted it and then claimed that she shouldn't get criticism for the tweet because she deleted it so quickly. <laughs> Obviously, she's a newbie to Twitter because that's not how Twitter works. And this, of all things on Twitter, this deserves criticism. The thing is, she's actually very, very close to being correct, but she's so close to being correct, she couldn't be more incorrect. This is what I mean. Young teens are already watching pornography. She's correct. And they are finding hardcore pornography videos, aggressive videos. Correct. And they do give a terrible, unhealthy view of sex. All of that is correct. Her premise is correct. It's her solution 
That's bonkers. The solution should not be entry-level porn. The solution should be don't watch pornography. The solution should be a cultural movement that condemns pornography. The solution should be men in our society stop watching pornography so that there's not a market for it the way that there is now. Because her premise is correct. Pornography is hurting young teenagers. But the solution, like I said, the solution sounds like something that would get someone sent to jail. So in the wake of this tweet, the BBC Women's Hour tweeted about it and said, quote, what's the best way to inform teenagers about pornography? Should there be age-appropriate porn? So this is my response to the Women's Hour. There is no such thing as age-appropriate porn that is an oxymoron. That's a contradiction. The best way to inform teenagers about pornography is for their parents to openly talk to them about the dangers of pornography. For schools, if they're talking about this sort of thing, if they're talking in sex ed classes about pornography, to talk about the psychological, mental, and physical damages that pornography causes if you watch it. To yourself, to your health, to your relationships, to your marriage, and to society, and to women. That is the best way to inform teenagers about pornography. But did the mainstream media report on Flora Gill's tweet advocating for pornography for children? They did not. Story number two, the director of the NIH, yes, of course, uh, and you might recognize the NIH because of Fauci, but the director of the NIH is named Francis Collins, and Francis Collins said on television yesterday that parents should wear masks at home with their children. Take a listen to this. It's clear that this variant is capable of causing serious illness in children. Uh, you have heard those stories coming out of Louisiana pediatric ICUs where there are kids as young as a few months old who are sick from this. That is rare. Certainly younger people are less likely to fall ill. But anybody who tries to tell you, ah, oh, you don't have to worry about it if you're a young, healthy person, there's many counterexamples all around us now. Well, so yeah, you do need to think about it. And that's the reason why the recommendations are uh, for kids under 12, uh, that they avoid being in places where they might get infected, which means recommendations of mask wearing in schools, and that at home, uh, parents of unvaccinated kids should be thoughtful about this. And the recommendation is to wear masks there as well. Let me just follow up I on that. I know that's though. uncomfortable. I know it seems weird, but it is the best way to protect your kids. Which is absolutely insane. That's absolutely bonkers. Then, of course, in the wake of a million people like me saying, this is bonkers, we're never going to do that, don't be a jack wagon, uh, Francis Collins backtracked and tweeted and said, let me clarify the masking message that I garbled on New Day this morning. Vaccinated parents who live in communities with high COVID transmission rates should mask when out in public indoor settings to minimize risks to their unvaccinated kids. No need to mask at home, end quote. Okay, bro. It didn't sound garbled to me. So when I originally looked at this story, I thought maybe people were exaggerating. Maybe he had a slip of the tongue. Maybe it wasn't clear what he meant. And I listened to this and I laughed because he obviously didn't garble the message. He literally said, I know that sounds weird. I know that's uncomfortable. And he didn't stumble over his words. He said, vaccinated parents should mask at home around their unvaccinated kids. That's what he said and that's what he meant. Now, it sounds like he changed his mind because parents told him where he could shove it. But obviously, either way, this man did not give any scientific justification for what he's saying. And the time has long passed for anybody to obey any public health expert unless they literally hand you the scientific study that says, this is the reason why we are now recommending XYZ, because this study 
informs us of XYZ result, which informs our public policy. If a public health official is not handing you the study and showing you the science, then I'm just going to ignore them, which is what I've been doing for a long, long time now. Um, Okay. This next story is super crazy. Story number three, Biden's Department of Homeland Security is now giving migrants at the border, illegal aliens crossing our border, the J&J COVID vaccine before releasing them into the United States or even giving them the vaccine before deporting them. Now, I think they're technically saying that they're offering the vaccine, but we know the power imbalance in this sort of situation. I wonder how much of a choice these illegal aliens actually have. But here was my thought when I first heard this story. First of all, who's paying for this? Who's paying for these vaccines? Is it me? Is my tax money funding the U.S. giving vaccines to illegal aliens at the border? Oh, I bet the answer is yes. I bet that's your money and I bet that's my money. Vaccinating illegal aliens at the border. And here's the thing. If illegal aliens get this vaccine at the border and then they're released into our country, just given a court date, which we all know means they won't show back up, they're going to fade into the shadows in the United States and live here, even though they're not of legal status, If they do this with the vaccine, then think about this. Illegal aliens in New York City will be able to eat at restaurants and go to the gym and attend shows. But citizens of the United States of America who cherish their medical freedom, who cherish their privacy, who decline the COVID vaccine for valid reasons of their own, it's none of my business, will not be able to eat at restaurants or go to the gym or go to a show in New York City thanks to Democrat policies. How insane is that? Can you even imagine? I mean, this is what we've been saying for a long time, that the Democrats want this two-tier society where people who adhere to radical leftist ideology are allowed to live how Democrats want them to live, but allowed to live freely in society. And anybody who contradicts that radical leftist ideology will be excluded, will be socially ostracized. And here we see this in action. But did the mainstream media tell you about this? They only reported it, by the way, as if this was a good thing, as if it addressed people's concerns about Biden releasing illegal aliens into the United States. Of course, it doesn't address the concern. It makes it worse on two counts, both our taxpayer money and the two-tier system now that citizens are going to be treated worse than illegal aliens in our country. Story number four, in Washington state, Police officers are now being forced because of so-called police reform, and I put that in question marks, they're going to be forced to allow violent criminals to escape. That doesn't seem like a very good reform to me. So Jay Inslee is the governor of Washington state. He signed this bill in May, but it just went into effect, and he claims that it's going to uproot systemic racism in our society because Washington is an anti-racist state, he says. This is all, by the way, thanks to the Black Lives Matter defund the police that people in the state of Washington are going to be at higher risk of being the victims of violent crime because police will not have the capacity to stop violent criminals thanks to legislation sparked by the defund the police movement. So some of the actual stipulations in this legislation, cops will now be required to have probable cause to arrest violent criminals um, before, of course, the standard was reasonable suspicion. So probable cause, you essentially have to have your, your case. You have to be the prosecutor on the spot. You have to have your case laid out before you can even make an arrest of someone who just who you just suspect committed a violent crime. How could a police officer ever do that? How could they ever have the case laid out before an arrest is even made if they're on the scene of a violent crime? That's so insane. So these new laws will allow a police officer, officer to ask a suspect who's fleeing to stop. They're allowed to ask them to stop, ask the criminal, oh, criminal, will you please stop for me? 
but the officer cannot use any force to prevent the suspect from escaping unless, again, there's probable cause. Can you imagine being a police officer? And I mean, police officers obviously have to forcibly arrest people all the time. That's the idea of police officers. That's the idea of arresting. Criminals don't turn themselves in. But now the officers have to say, I'm sorry, I would like to arrest you. Could you come over here? And if the criminal goes, yeah, right, the officer literally has to have the case laid out in front of him before he's allowed to use any force to prevent the suspect from fleeing. Can you believe this? They're also, cops are now required in the state of Washington to use the, quote, least amount of physical force necessary. So what's, what's the standard of this? How do you know unless you're in the situation with the least amount of physical force necessary? The previous standard was using reasonable force. And that, of course, was, as the word suggests, reasonable. So cops are going to get in trouble now if someone else feels like there might have been a lesser amount of force. I mean, we're talking, you know, the Democrats' narrative of why didn't you shoot the person in the leg instead of killing them? Those people are going to be determining whether cops have used the least amount of force necessary. What this is going to culminate in is it's actually going to be easier for police officers um, to chase a drunk driver than to chase a person they suspect committed murder. No wonder police officers in the state of Washington are confused and annoyed. And here's some of the unintentional repercussions of this so-called police reform. So there's been a military equipment ban in this legislation, 50 cal ban. And because of that, police have had to surrender beanbag launchers and foam round launchers that were 50 cal, even though they're less than lethal force weapons. So Democrats are idiots. What else is new? The sky is blue. Um, this is just a, another example of it. And this law creates a new agency. I hate, 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 hate when new agencies are formed because new agencies are rarely accountable to the voter. The law creates a new agency to investigate and charge law enforcement officers should a law enforcement officer break some law. In the past, of course, this was just done by a normal prosecutor. But now there's a separate agency for this. Uh, so this will not surprise you, but violent crime is rising in Washington state. Assault on police officers has increased by nearly 7% since 2019, and murders have risen in the state by 67% since 2016. But did the mainstream media report any of this to you? No, no, they did not. And nor, by the way, did they report that some of these leftist mayors who, uh, not in the state of Washington necessarily, but in other liberal cities that are also kowtowing to this defund the police movement, Bill de Blasio, for example, Lori Lightfoot, London Breed of San Francisco, as they're defunding the police in their cities, they are receiving taxpayer-funded security details, but the mainstream media doesn't report that to you either, so I will. What I want to do right now is I want to talk about the Locals VIP of the week. The Locals VIP of the week, this is, this is something that I want to do every week, is I want to talk about um, a new member of the Liz Wheeler Show community on Locals uh, and welcome you, welcome you to our community. Today, our Locals VIP of the week is R-E-V, Reverend Richie. Reverend Richie, thanks for joining us. It's good to have you here, sir. It's good to have you on the Liz Wheeler Show community on Locals. Um, there's a lot of fun things that we do on Locals. There's a lot of exclusive benefits. As you know, we have question and answer sessions over there. Frequently, I post things there that I don't post on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram. Yesterday, for example, is a good example of... Uh, how useful Locals is in the face of censorship from big tech. I was talking about the scientific case against mask mandates, and I knew that this violates the terms of service of YouTube, so 
I put it exclusively for VIP supporters on Locals to be able to see because you got to be able to have the information even if big tech censors. So Reverend Richie, we're glad you're here. Please introduce yourself to the rest of the group. We all like to get to know each other, uh, know what you do for a living, know what your life history is, know why you're conservative, know what issues you think are the most important, and what you're reading or doing um, today. Anybody else who wants to join us, come on over, lizwheelershow.com slash locals. Reverend Richie, we are glad to have you. And on that note, we're out of time for today. If you missed any of the episodes from this week, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and take a listen. Tag me on Instagram if you listen to them uh, through there. Let me know what you think. What was your favorite? In the meantime, before we're back, think for yourself. Use critical thought. Question authority. Follow the facts. And don't let government or corporate wokeism or cultural Marxism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. Please do subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps drastically. Give us a five-star rating. Write us a glowing review. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. And this is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Assistant editor, Michael Wall. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-production manager, Victoria Metzl. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. Senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. And production assistant, Mickey Pisani. This has been a Soundfront production.